Hello and welcome, friends, family, and enemies alike, to episode 28 of Reading Cadence. I'm your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Today, we continue through the illustrious story of War and Peace with chapters 15 and 16. And if you will recall, since it's been a few episodes, it's the last one, Anna Mikhailovna is hoping that her son Boris will be able to convince the dying Count Cyril Vladimirovich Brzukov to bless her son with his fortune. Now, who else is in the running, you may ask? Our lovely friend, Pierre. So, let us read Chapter 15 of War and Peace. My dear Boris, said Princess Anna Mikhailovna to her son, as Countess Rostova's carriage in which they were seated drove over the straw-covered street and turned into the wide courtyard of Count Cyril Vladimirovich Bezukov's house. My dear Boris, said the mother, drawing her hand from beneath her old mantle and laying it timidly and tenderly on her son's arm. Be affectionate and attentive to him. Count Cyril Vladimirovich is your godfather, after all, and your future depends on him. Remember that, my dear, and be nice to him, as you so well know how to be. If only I knew that anything besides humiliation would come of it, answered her son coldly, but I have promised and will do it for your sake. Although the hall porter saw someone's carriage standing at the entrance, after scrutinizing the mother and son, who, without asking to be announced, had passed straight through the glass porch between the rows of statues and niches, and looked significantly at the lady's old cloak, he asked whether they wanted the count or the princesses, and hearing that they wished to see the count, said his excellency was worse today, and that his excellency was not receiving anyone. We may as well go back, said the son in French. My dear, exclaimed his mother imploringly, again laying her hand on his arm as if that touch might soothe or rouse him. Boris said no more, but looked inquiringly at his mother without taking off his cloak. My friend, said Anna Mikhailovna in gentle tones, addressing the hall porter. I know Count Cyril Vladimirovich is very ill. That's why I've come. I am a relation. I shall not disturb him, my friend. I only need see Prince Vasily Sergeyevich. He is staying here, is he not? Please, announce me. The hall porter sullenly pulled a bell that rang upstairs and turned away. Princess Strubetskia to see Prince Vasily Sergeyevich, he called to a footman dressed in knee breeches, shoes, and a swallowtail coat, who ran downstairs and looked over from the halfway landing. The mother smoothed the folds of her dyed silk dress before a large Venetian mirror in the wall, and in her trodden-down shoes briskly ascended the carpeted stairs. My dear, she said to her son, once more stimulating him by a touch. You promised me. The son, lowering his eyes, 
followed her quietly. They entered the large hall, from which one of the doors led to the apartments assigned to Prince Vasily. Just as the mother and son, having reached the middle of the hall, were about to ask their way of an elderly footman who had sprung up as they entered, the bronze handle of one of the doors turned, and Prince Vasily came out, wearing a velvet coat with a single star on his breast, as was his custom when at home, taking leave of a good-looking dark-haired man. This was the celebrated Petersburg doctor, Lorraine. Then it is certain, said the prince. Prince, to err is human, but replied the doctor, swallowing his R's and pronouncing the Latin words with a French accent. Very well, very well. Seeing Anna Mikhailovna and her son, Prince Vasily dismissed the doctor with a bow and approached them silently and with a look of inquiry. The son noticed that an expression of profound sorrow suddenly clouded his mother's face, and he smiled slightly. Ah, oh, Prince! In what sad circumstances we meet. And how is our dear invalid? Said she, as though unaware of the cold offensive looked fixed on her. Prince Vasily stared at her, and at Boris questioningly and perplexed. Boris bowed politely. Prince Vasily, without acknowledging the bow, turned to Anna Mikhailovna, answering her query by a movement of the head and lips, indicating very little hope for the patient. Is it possible? exclaimed Anna Mikhailovna. Oh, how awful! It is terrible to think. This is my son, she added, indicating Boris. He wanted to thank you himself. Boris bowed again politely. Believe me, prince, a mother's heart will never forget what you have done for us. I'm glad I was able to do you a service, my dear Anna Mikhailovna, said Prince Vasily, arranging his lace frill and in tone and manner, here in Moscow to Anna Mikhailovna, whom he had placed under an obligation, assuming an air of much greater importance than he had done in Petersburg at Anna Scherer's reception. Try to serve well and show yourself worthy, added he, addressing Boris with severity. I'm glad... Are you here on leave? He went on in his usual tone of indifference. I am waiting orders to join my new regiment, Your Excellency, replied Boris, betraying neither annoyance at the prince's brusque manner, nor a desire to enter into conversation, but speaking so quietly and respectfully that the prince gave him a searching glance. Are you living with your mother? I am living at Countess Rostova's, replied Boris, again adding, Your Excellency. That is with Ilya Rostov, who married Natalia Shinshina, said Anna Mikhailovna. I know, I know, answered Prince Vasily in his monotonous voice. I never could uh, understand how Natalia made up her mind to marry that unlicked bear, a perfectly absurd and stupid fellow, and a gambler too, I'm told. But a very kind man, Prince, said Anna Mikhailovna with a pathetic smile, as though she too knew that Count Rustov deserved this censure, but asked him not to be too hard on the poor old man. What do the doctors say? 
asked the princess after a pause, her worn face again expressing deep sorrow. They give little hope, replied the prince, and I should so like to thank uncle once for all his kindness to me and Boris. He is his godson, she added, her tone suggesting that this fact ought to give Prince Vasily much satisfaction. Prince Vasily became thoughtful and frowned. Anna Mikhailovna saw that he was afraid of finding in her a rival for Count Bezukhov's fortune, and hastened to reassure him. If it were not for my sincere affection and devotion to uncle, said she, uttering the word with particular assurance and unconcern, I know his character, noble, upright, but you see, he has no one with him except the young princesses. They are still young. She bent her head and continued in a whisper. Has he performed his final duty, prince? How priceless are those last moments. It can make things no worse, and it is absolutely necessary to prepare him if he is so ill. We women, prince, said she, smiling tenderly, always know how to say these things. I absolutely must see him, however painful it may be for me. I am used to suffering. Evidently, the prince understood her, and also understood, as he had done at Anna Pavlovna's, that it would be difficult to get rid of Anna Mikhailovna. Would not such a meeting be too trying for him, dear Anna Mikhailovna? said he. Let us wait until evening. The doctors are expecting a crisis. But one cannot delay, prince, at such a moment. Consider that the welfare of his soul is at stake. Ah, it is awful, the duties of a Christian. A door of one of the inner rooms opened, and one of the princesses, the Count's niece, entered with a cold, stern face. The length of her body was strikingly out of proportion to her short legs. Prince Vasily turned to her. Well, how is he? Still the same, but what can you expect? This noise, said the princess, looking at Anna Mikhailovna as at a stranger. Ah, oh, my dear, I hardly knew you, said Anna Mikhailovna with a happy smile, ambling lightly up to the Count's niece. I've come, and I'm at your service to help you nurse my uncle. I imagine what you have gone through, and she sympathetically turned up her eyes. The princess gave no reply and did not even smile, but left the room as Anna Mikhailovna took off her gloves and, occupying the position she had conquered, settled down in an armchair, inviting Prince Vasily to take a seat beside her. Boris, she said to her son with a smile, I shall go in to see the Count, my uncle. But you, my dear, had better go to Pierre meanwhile, and don't forget to give him the Rustov's invitation. They ask him for dinner. I suppose he won't go, she continued, turning to the prince. On the contrary, replied the prince, who had plainly become depressed. I shall be only too glad if you relieve me of that young man. Here he is, and the Count has not once asked for him. He shrugged his shoulders. A footman conducted Boris down one flight of stairs and up another to Pierre's rooms. End of chapter 15 Chapter 16 
Pierre, after all, had not managed to choose a career for himself in Petersburg, and had been expelled from there for righteous conduct and sent to Moscow. The story told about him at Count Rustov's was true. Pierre had taken part in tying a policeman to a bear. He had now been for some days in Moscow, and was staying, as usual, at his father's house. Though he expected that the story of his escapade would be already known in Moscow, and that the ladies about his father, who were never favorably disposed toward him, would have used it to turn the count against him, he nevertheless, on the day of his arrival, went to his father's part of the house. Entering the drawing room, where the princesses spent most of their time, he greeted the ladies, two of whom were sitting at embroidery frames, while a third read aloud. It was the eldest who was reading the one who had met Anna Mikhailovna. The two younger ones were embroidering. Both were rosy and pretty, and they differed only in that one had a little mole on her lip, which made her much prettier. Pierre was received as if he were a corpse or a leper. The eldest princess paused in her reading and silently stared at him with frightened eyes. The second assumed precisely the same expression, while the youngest the one with the mole, who was of cheerful and lively disposition, bent over her frame to hide a smile probably evoked by the amusing scene she foresaw. She drew her wool down through the canvas, and scarcely able to refrain from laughing, stooped as if trying to make out the pattern. "'How do you do, cousin?' said Pierre. "'You don't recognize me?' "'I recognize you only too well, too well. "'How is the Count?' Can I see him? said Pierre, awkwardly as usual, but unabashed. The Count is suffering physically and mentally, and apparently you have done your best to increase his mental sufferings. Can I see the Count? Pierre asked again. <clears throat> if you wish to kill him, to kill him outright, you can see him. Olga, go and see whether Uncle's beef tea is ready. It is almost time, she added, giving Pierre to understand that they were busy, and busy making his father comfortable, while evidently he, Pierre, was only busy causing him annoyance. Olga went out. Pierre stood looking at the sisters. Then he bowed and said, Then I will go to my rooms. You will let me know when I can see him. And he left the room, followed by the low but ringing laughter of the sister with the mole. Next day, Prince Vasily had arrived and settled in the Count's house. He sent for Pierre and said to him, My dear fellow, if you're going to behave here as you did in Petersburg, you will end very badly. That is all I have to say to you. The Count is very, very ill, and you must not see him at all. Since then, Pierre had not been disturbed and had spent the whole time in his rooms upstairs. When Boris appeared at his door, Pierre was pacing up and down his room, stopping occasionally at a corner to make menacing gestures at the wall, as if running a sword through an invisible foe and glaring savagely over his spectacles, and then again resuming his walk, muttering indistinct words, shrugging his shoulders and gesticulating. "'England is done for,' said he, scowling and pointing his finger at someone unseen. "'Mr. Pitt!' as a traitor to the nation and to the rights of man, is sentenced to... But before Pierre, who at that moment imagined himself to be Napoleon in person, 
and to have just effected the dangerous crossing of the Straits of Dover and captured London, could pronounce Pitt's sentence. He saw a well-built and handsome young officer entering his room. Pierre paused. He had left Moscow when Boris was a boy of fourteen and had quite forgotten him. But in his usual impulsive and hearty way, he took Boris by the hand with a friendly smile. Do you remember me? asked Boris quietly with a pleasant smile. I've come with my mother to see the Count, but it seems he is not well. Yes, he seems ill. People are always disturbing him, answered Pierre, trying to remember who this young man was. Boris felt that Pierre did not recognize him, but did not consider it necessary to introduce himself, and without experiencing the least embarrassment, looked Pierre straight in the face. Count Rustov asks you to come to dinner today, said he, after a considerable pause, which made Pierre feel uncomfortable. Ah, Count Rustov, exclaimed Pierre joyfully. Then you are his son, Ilya. Only fancy I didn't know you at first. Do you remember how we went to Sparrow Hills with Madame Jacot? It's such an age. You are mistaken, said Boris deliberately, with a bold and slightly sarcastic smile. I am Boris, son of Princess Anna Mikhailovna Drubetskia. Rustov, the father, is Ilya, and his son Nicolas. I never knew any Madame Jacot. Pierre shook his head in arms as if attacked by mosquitoes or bees. Oh dear, what am I thinking about? I've mixed everything up. One has so many relatives in Moscow. So you are Boris? Of course. Well, now we know where we are. And what do you think of the Boulogne expedition? The English will come off badly, you know, if Napoleon gets across the channel. I think the expedition is quite feasible, if only Villanova doesn't make a mess of things. Boris knew nothing about the Boulogne expedition. He did read the papers, and it was the first time he had heard Villanova's name. We here in Moscow are more occupied with dinner parties and scandal than with politics said he in his quiet, ironical tone. I know nothing about it, and have not thought about it. Moscow is chiefly busy with gossip, he continued. Just now they are talking about you and your father. Pierre smiled in his good-natured way, as if afraid for his companion's sake that the latter might say something he would afterwards regret. But Boris spoke distinctly, clearly, and dryly, looking straight into Pierre's eyes. Moscow has nothing else to do but gossip, Boris went on. Everybody is wondering to whom the Count will leave his fortune, though he may perhaps outlive us all, as I sincerely hope he will. Yes, it is all very horrid, interrupted Pierre. Very horrid. Pierre was still afraid that this officer might inadvertently say something disconcerting to himself. And it must seem to you, said Boris, flushing slightly, but not changing his tone or attitude, it must seem to you that everyone is trying to get something out of that rich man. So it does, thought Pierre. But I just wish to say, to avoid misunderstandings, that you are quite mistaken if you reckon me or my mother among such people. We are very poor, but for my own part at any rate, for the very reason that your father is rich, I don't regard myself as a relation of his. 
and neither I nor my mother would ever ask or take anything from him. For a long time, Pierre could not understand. But when he did, he jumped from the sofa, seized Boris under the elbow in his quick, clumsy way, and, blushing far more than Boris, began to speak with a feeling of mingled shame and vexation. Well, this is strange. Do you suppose I? Who could think? I know very well. But Boris again interrupted him. I'm glad I have spoken out fully. Perhaps you did not like it? You must excuse me, said he, putting Pierre at ease instead of being put at ease by him. But I hope I have not offended you. I always make it a rule to speak out. Well, what answer am I to take? Will you come to dinner at the Rustovs? And Boris, having apparently relieved himself of an onerous duty and extricated himself from an awkward situation and placed another in it, became quite pleasant again. No, but I say, said Pierre, calming down, you are a wonderful fellow. What you have just said is good, very good. Of course you don't know me. We have not met for such a long time, not since we were children. You might think that I... I understand, quite understand. I could not have done it myself. I should not have had the courage, but it's splendid. I'm very glad to have made your acquaintance. It's queer, he added after a pause, that you should have suspected me. <laughs> he began to laugh. Well, what of it? I hope we'll get better acquainted. And he pressed Boris's hand. Do you know, I have not once been in to see the Count. He has not sent for me. I am sorry for him as a man. But what can one do? And so you think Napoleon will manage to get an army across? Asked Boris with a smile. Pierre saw that Boris wished to change the subject, and being of the same mind, he began explaining the advantages and disadvantages of the Boulogne expedition. A footman came in to summon Boris. The princess was going. Pierre, in order to make Boris's better acquaintance, promised to come to dinner, and warmly pressing his hand, looked affectionately over his spectacles into Boris's eyes. After he had gone, Pierre continued pacing up and down the room for a long time, no longer piercing an imaginary foe with his imaginary sword, but smiling at the remembrance of that pleasant, intelligent, and resolute young man. As often happens in early youth, especially to one who leads a lonely life, he felt an unaccountable tenderness for this young man, and made up his mind that they would be friends. Prince Vasily saw the princess off. She held a handkerchief to her eyes, and her face was tearful. It's dreadful, dreadful, she was saying, but cost me what it may, I shall do my duty. I will come and spend the night. He must not be left like this. Every moment is precious. I can't think why his nieces put it off. Perhaps God will help me to find a way to prepare him. Adieu, my prince. May God support you. Adieu, ma bonne, answered Prince Vasily, turning away from her. Oh, he is in a dreadful state, said the mother to her son when they were in the carriage. He hardly recognizes anybody. I don't understand, Mama. What is his attitude to Pierre? asked the son. The will will show that, my dear. Our fate also depends on it. But why do you suspect that he will leave us anything? 
Ah, my dear, he is so rich, and we are so poor. Well, that is hardly a sufficient reason, Mamma. Oh, heaven, how ill he is, exclaimed the mother. End of chapter 16. And in typical Princess Anna Mikhailovna Drubetskia fashion, she will not take no for an answer. She will force Count Cyril Vladimirovich Bazukov to will his fortune to her son Boris. And when, as soon as she entered the house, this is exactly what I love to see. A great tension exists in the room, and Tolstoy leaves no details to chance, which is what I love about him, even to the point of describing the minor character Footman and how they're dressed, their age, how they're walking, their gait. It is incredible the amount of detail that Tolstoy puts into this kind of stuff. But I love to see, okay, so picture this. The princess has her son. I'm going to insert myself into the Count's life so that he has sympathy for my son and wills his fortune to him so that thereby I can benefit as well. And then she goes up to Prince Vasily, who is also potentially in line to inherit this fortune. And then we add another piece where Boris doesn't actually seem like he really cares whether he gets the fortune or not. And we've got Pierre, who is once again an outcast, as we learn about his story and how after he got kicked out of Petersburg and sent back to Moscow, people still think he's a nut and just have deemed him a hazard to everyone's health, including the Count's. And they won't let him see, which is exactly why I think Pierre is going to be the one to inherit the fortune. Because he is that renegade that we all kind of want to win out. And we don't know whether he'll actually use it for good or not. He's kind of a misguided fool, let's just say. Um, I don't like how he is sympathetic to Napoleon. Because Napoleon was objectively a bad person. But uh, I also really like this storyline. Because I think... Of all of the characters, his is the story arc that I really want to see unfold and something that I really want Tolstoy to develop. But regardless of that fact, then we've got this relationship now forming between Boris, who doesn't give a care about the fortune, and Pierre, who kind of does and is also most likely the one. And now Pierre is kind of imposing a friendship upon he and Boris. And I think they will indeed become very good friends because Pierre is also one of those people who gets what he wants. And yeah, this is just, oh man, the fireworks. I can just see them. Like, what is going to happen? Like, I am rooting for the Count's death right now. And that sounds awful, but I really want to see what happens. But I love the picture, the, 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 Mm, that is just forming that Tolstoy probably furiously was petting to just show, like, this incredible tension. Oh, my gosh. I would have loved to be paint on the wall or pipes 
in that house. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. And until next time, as they say in show business, for now, that's all he wrote. <laughs>